Department S was another cracking show from ITC, a stable of telefantasy genre telly and made during their peak in 1969, the height of swinging London. Department S was a branch of Interpol that was concerned with investigating cases deemed insoluble by other departments. The ITC promotional material stated, The cases are inexplicable, baffling and illogical. They have to be, to interest Department S. The orthodox is not for this department of Interpol. Its operators handle only cases which cannot be solved by normal police routine. Basically, they investigate the things Fox Mulder read about when he was a child. Department S was headed up by Sir Curtis Surtees, played by Dennis Alaba Peters, normally from the department's main HQ located in Paris. The people who do the dirty work seem to consist of three people, much like the previous ITC series, The Champions, implying that this was a formula that was working well for them. There were three main cast members for Department S. Former FBI agent Stuart Sullivan, played by Joel Fabiani, was ostensibly the lead. Sullivan is by the book. He follows leads, makes deductions and questions suspects. He's solid and dependable and... One has to wonder how someone as by-the-book as Sullivan came to work for an unorthodox unit like Department S. Fabiani does well in a thankless role, the typical ITC lead. It's a hard job for an actor, really. These roles are written to be as bland as possible, and it took an actor of special charisma, Roger Moore or Patrick McGowan, to rise above the material. Fabiani gets better as the show progresses, and the chemistry between the leads improves. The second agent was Annabelle Hurst, played by Rosemary Nichols, the computer expert and analyst as well as field investigator. Annabelle is more practical. A scientist and thinker, she's more likely to consult her computer than listen to any stupid theories, and she and Sullivan seem to be in a relationship, based upon the amount of flirting they engage in. Obviously this is all subtext, and may have just been added by the actors, as it's not really the focus of the scripts. This isn't a will-they-won't-they they relationship. They clearly are, but the show isn't about that. It's about the mysteries. Credited as the lead, however, was perhaps the most intriguing and entertaining member of the ensemble, Jason King, portrayed by Peter Wingard. King is an adventure novelist who uses the details from the cases in his books, although presumably altered so he doesn't breach the Trade Descriptions Act. These novels became the hugely successful Mark Kane series. Think a similar kind of globe-trotting adventurer as James Bond, although whether Mark Kane ever actually worked for the Secret Service I don't think was ever mentioned. Largely believed to be based upon Ian Fleming, King is a rampaging chauvinist, adorned in wonderfully outrageous clothing and often seen with a beautiful woman on each arm, a whiskey in one hand and a glass of bolly in the other. My favourite line of Jason's was, upon being offered a coffee when he arrived in the office, it's too early for coffee, I'll have a scotch. In many ways he's a prototype to Nathan Fillion's Rick Castle, a novelist who gains access to the detective simply because he wants to, can, and has the financial needs to not need a regular job. Like Castle, King would frequently come up with the most absurd flights of fancy to explain the case at hand, and, like Castle, he was normally right. We now need a TV writer turned detective called Queen, and we'll have a full set. 
As with all ITC shows, the story structure followed the US TV format of a teaser and four acts to make for easy foreign sales, but they did play with the structure somewhat. The teaser was always this week's case, but the episode title, writer, director and theme music would all kick off over a still frame of the teaser's last action before leaping into the credits. As with the X-Files later, each episode also had a location and date, 6th of March, Heathrow Airport, for example. The credits saw each member of the team receive a black dossier, which they then passed over the camera. The camera went black and the next actor took the file. The final credit, Dennis Alaba-Peters, had no further character pass it on to, so he placed it at his side to reveal the Department S logo. Here's the opening theme. S kicked off with an episode that is both odd and perfectly in keeping with the show. All the Department S episodes had great pre-title sequences, even if the stories that followed didn't exactly live up to the teaser. Six Days is almost a perfect Department S episode in this regard. The pre-credit sequence features an aeroplane returning to land at Heathrow. On board, all seems well. In fact, a tailwind has returned them home half an hour early. Or so they think. In fact, the plane's arrival causes uproar, and it turns out the plane isn't half an hour early, it's six days overdue. Where the passengers and crew have been for six days, and what happened to them, is a problem out of the remit of Special Branch, so Department S are called in. In this case, they have a vested interest, as Sosurtis was aboard the plane. Now, six days is a pretty good episode if it heard in the middle of the season. As the first episode, it's a bust. Pilot episodes of TV shows back in the day tended to be one of two plots. Either they told the story from the beginning, explaining how the characters got where they were and what they needed to do to ensure a series could be mined from their predicament, or it was just another day at the office, a standard episode whereby the viewer was brought up to speed as the story went along. Six days is neither. No attempt is made to introduce what Department S is, nor is there an introduction given to the characters. The central mystery is intriguing, but we aren't told that Surtees is the head of Department S, what Department S is, or what they do, beyond a few sentences that appear in the opening titles. 
We only know who the main characters are because of those self-same titles. And even then, the first build actor, Wingard, only makes his debut ten minutes in. Annabelle isn't mentioned by name at all. Further investigation reveals Six Days to be the sixth episode made. The first episode made was The Man in the Elegant Room, written by Dalek and Blake Seven creator Terry Nation. Further episodes, though, would continue to exploit the weird and the wonderful before becoming routine investigations. The Man from X sees a spaceman wandering downtown Soho, where he mysteriously drops dead. The Pied Piper of Hambledown finds a woman waking in the middle of the night to see her entire town rounded up and taken away. One of our aircrafts is missing as a passenger jet land completely devoid of its travellers and crew. The Bones of Byron Blaine starts delving into the Avengers territory. When Byron Blaine is chauffeured into his driveway, everyone is surprised that behind the newspaper he's reading is a skeleton. The mission becomes personal when Surtees is the next to be aged to a skeleton. Overall, this was a decent episode, and probably better than six days, in that it featured the three investigators all following their own lines of inquiry before coming together at the end to pool their knowledge. But not before Jason is aged beyond all reasoning, his skeleton being recovered by the team two-thirds into the episode. This was nicely foreshadowed, as earlier on Annabelle had wondered if Jason's skeleton possessed that moustache. Annabelle finds out that it's all a ruse to exchange information on counter-espionage, and if some of it is silly, then so what? It's an ITC show from the 60s. Silly was the name of the game. In fact, Department S could have done with a little bit more silly in its DNA, perhaps taking a leaf from the Avengers book and being a tad more outlandish in its plots. Rarely did the series live up to its intriguing teasers, with the stories always having a reasonable, if not logical, explanation. In many ways, Department S was a live-action Scooby-Doo. That said, most of the episodes are eminently enjoyable, despite there being at least four episodes focusing on that most 60s of plot devices, brainwashing. Add some ESP in and you're ticking all the 60s boxes. As with all shows of this vintage, playing spot the not-yet-famous face is great fun, with Anthony Hopkins, Anthony Ainley, Ronald Lacey, Wanda Ventham and Kate O'Mara, plus many others, all making guest star appearances throughout the show's 28-episode run. The four leads all bring something to it, despite inveterate scene-stealer Wingard frequently stealing the show from under their noses. The dialogue between the three of them is often funny, and in Wingard's case, quite barbed. Perhaps the biggest mystery Department S never solved was that of Wingard himself. When he passed away in 2019, Wingard's personal history turned out to be as fanciful as the Mark Cain novels. Peter Wingard wasn't even his real name, his birth name being given as Cyril Lewis Goldbert, but there was a question mark over even the veracity of that. He also had multiple birth dates. When he died, most news outlets gave his age as 90, but there was contradictory evidence that implied his real birth date could be anywhere in between 1924 and 1937. He claimed to have been born in Singapore, but later denied ever having been there. Other reports say he was born in Marseille. One thing was certain, he was interned in a concentration camp in Lunghua Civilian Assembly Centre in Shanghai, and this was also incorporated into Jason King's bio. Jason King's biography is probably the most realistic and authentic of Peter Wingard's story. 
Wingard's influence on pop culture is profound, with his appearance as Clytus in Flash Gordon and being the inspiration for Austin Powers. Although of that role, Wingard said, Jason wouldn't be caught dead in Crushed Velvet. He's best known to comics fans, though, as Jason Wingard, leader of the Hellfire Club in the Uncanny X-Men comics, based upon Wingard's appearance in The Avengers. Department S did okay in the ratings, but it was quickly realised that the younger set, and oddly, women, were tuning in for one reason. Jason King. It seems strange today that the notoriously sexist, overtly narcissistic, almost parodic Jason King would be seen as a ladies' man. But such were the times. King's bouffant hair, elegant moustache and outre fashions all seem now like a slightly past-his-prime Carnaby Street playboy making one last-ditch attempt at relevance. But in 1970, King was voted the man most Australian women wanted an affair with. And upon his arrival at Sydney Airport, he was mobbed. This popularity meant that in 1972, Jason was spun off into his own show, albeit under protest from ITC head Lord Lou Grade, who didn't feel the show had substantial overseas appeal. He acquiesced, simply because his wife was one of the women who longed to have an affair with Jason King. Sadly, it came with a few cost-cutting strings attached. Unlike the other ITC shows of that vintage, Jason King was not shot on 30mm film. Costs were cut, so Jason was shot on 16mm. The resultant effect is the show doesn't look quite as crisp or colourful as other shows in the ITC stable. The credits are also changed and are much more like Murder, She Wrote. There are shots of Jason lounging around in his bathrobe and cravat, typing on a typewriter and drinking with a bikini-clad beauty all draped over him. It's not as intriguing as Department S. See what you think. See what I mean? It sounds more like a game show than an ITC action-adventure series. Jason King is now a constantly vacationing layabout, with Department S really mentioned, other than a cursory, I don't work for them anymore, which implies Department S carried on with Sullivan and Annabelle as a proto-Maddie and David, continuing to have outlandish adventures together without that dilettante dandy getting in the way. Jason's own show was a bit more fun, as might be expected with Wingard in the lead. ITC's writers had their tongues more firmly pressed into their cheeks for Jason King, a character who, as a writer, meant they could send up the profession, television writing in particular, to the heart's content. Case in point, the first episode of Jason King, Do You Want to Buy a Television Series, is clever, even by today's standards. 
It opens as if it's a normal ITC show of the era, with peculiarly accented doctors performing facial reconstructions on pretty young women, but it quickly turns out that this is Jason telling the plot to a TV version of his Mark Cain novels to a rather thick and uncreated US TV executive, who Jason isn't entirely convinced can read. As an aside, the peculiarly accented Doctor is played by Nicholas Courtney, who, as Brigadier Lethbridge Stewart, had to deal with his own dandy fop in Doctor Who. The script is peppered with in-jokes and what would today be called metatextual gags. The TV executive mentions they'd just come in from the teaser, just after they'd come into the teaser. Jason ends cliffhangers and says, and we fade to a commercial, as the episode fades to a commercial. There's even fake credits within the show. A face I used to know by Mark Kane is given as the name of the script that Jason is trying to sell to the television executive. Kane is also the star of the show, and he looks suspiciously like Jason King slash Peter Wingard. Jason tries to convince the exec that the opening scenes are setting up character motivation, but the exec thinks this is a waste of time. I cannot but wonder if these scenes were transcriptions of actual conversations. The exec interrupts at every turn, asking why Mark is so offbeat when heroes should be heroes. The subtext here being the exec is asking Jason to not be so overtly sexual. The slightest plot complication is required to be explained in painstaking detail, lest the audience be challenged too much into actually doing some thinking. You'll also hear in the upcoming clip the execs say, Get that woman's clothes off! And in a quick cut, the actress is suddenly in a bikini. Again, pointed commentary on the sexism of the time. King complains that the show has been dumbed down so much, it's translucent to the point of confusion. Here's Jason getting more and more exasperated. Well, all right, Jason, the titles are over. Go on, what's next? Girl on a motorboat in a bikini. Yeah, I go along with that. Uh, we'll need some more titles here as well. The, uh, the name of the episode. And, uh, your credit. Yes, of course. And we finish the sequence on an hotel and bring in Mark Kane. Six, Six feet and a half inches of steel, steel not, not tall by today's standards, standards but, but so slim and well-proportioned well -proportioned that he gives the appearance of a lithe athlete. He has dark curly hair, streaked by the sun, and a moustache... Oh, by the way, I still haven't thought who should play him on television. What's the matter? No, 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 it's great, Jason, it's great. It's, uh, it's just, um, one little thing. Why do we go to Mark Kane? Why? Yes, why? Well, as it's supposed to be about him, I thought it might be a good idea if he were to appear. <laughs> well, don't get me wrong, Jason, but, um... Well, you see, in television, you have to punch into the story. So what about motivation and characterization? Jason, who cares about motivation? I do. Oh, sure, in your novels you need it, yeah, sure. But in television, I got all those other channels to worry about. One wrong move and we've lost our audience. Well, doesn't Mark have to meet the other characters? Or doesn't he? Sure, but let him meet him off screen. Believe me, Jason, I've had a lot of experience in this business. And that reminds me, uh, couldn't you make Mark Kane more, uh, more, uh, more what? <laughs> well, don't get me wrong, Jason, but uh, in television, we like our heroes to be more like heroes. Not so uh, offbeat. After all, Jason, look, in television today, heroes don't really wear those long mustaches like that, do they? Well, he's not a cowboy, you know. 
Okay? Fine. Now, where's the villain of the piece? The villain? I don't want to give the whole thing away in the first shot. Trust me, Jason. Trust me. Now, where's your protagonist? Well, I thought I might introduce him much later on a yacht in Monte Carlo Harbor. Jason, that's okay. But none of this time-wasting stuff. If he's there, so is Mark Kane. How'd he get there? Yeah, just put in a line somewhere that he's going for a cruise. Who's the girl? She's just there for the dressing. Sex appeal. Then get her clothes off and carry on with the story. Where did you say you were staying, Mark? The actual story makes little difference to the proceedings. The viewer is watching for the way the TV executive spectacularly fails to get the point and Jason's increased impatience with the man. Wingard is perfect in the role, capturing Jason's rapidly rising dander perfectly. Although, for the first episode of the show, we're left wondering what exactly is the premise? Will we see more Mark Kane type adventures, or will it be the globe-trotting adventures of a novelist with too much time and money on his hands? And this problem permeated the series. It's not that Jason King doesn't have its moments. Even lacklustre ITC shows of the era were normally fun, entertaining romps, but without Department S to instigate the drama, King just kind of blunders into adventures like a mod cravat-wearing, Natalie-attired Jessica Fletcher, and he never really has a suitable reason for being there. Also, King himself is a problem. In Department S, he was a flamboyant playboy whose flights of fancy were tolerated because they often turned out to be right in a world where they were investigating the oddball and the unusual. His catty barbs worked when he was an out-there character working with other relatively normal, straight-laced people. In Jason King, he's the star attraction, and a little bit of him goes a long way. Yes, Wingard is hugely entertaining and a captivating actor, but his character is better as a sidekick, where he can walk in, steal the scene, and leave. The louche, out-of-touch lounge lizard gets a bit wearisome when he's the star attraction. Jason King didn't take off as well as it was hoped, and it never heard in America, so Lou Grade may have been right. King also dated very quickly, moving from the epitome of cool to the slightly creepy old uncle who insists on flirting with teenagers within a few years of the show's airing. More than anything, though, the risible Austin Powers movies have damaged Jason King's credibility, as slight as that may have been, in the same way that the Bond films felt the need to completely reinvent themselves, lest they were seen as parody. Mike Mayer's creation was a spot-on piss-take of King, albeit without Wingard's charm and way with a one-liner. It's hard to recommend Jason King nowadays. He's a character best left in the past, I think. I doubt modern millennials would get the joke of Jason King. They'd find him sexist, boorish and problematic. And they're probably right, with the caveat that Wingard was clearly in on the joke, but in a way that I don't think they'd appreciate today. I'm more sanguine about recommending Department S, though. While it's not the very best of ITC, it's enjoyable and fun in that way that this era of TV was. It also has a lot of potential for a reboot, and in our current creatively bankrupt era, I don't understand why this hasn't been revamped. It wasn't successful enough to cause a Twitter uproar if announced as a relaunch, and it doesn't have that massive a fan base that would harass and bully the creators online when production began. 
The characters could be largely left the same. Don Warrington would be perfect as Surtees, and Amelia Fox would be a great modern-day Annabelle, especially as the brainy computer type, who can also be a field agent, is now an accepted part of these things. Clive Owen would make a wonderful Sullivan, and if there's one actor alive who can steal scenes with a cheeky one-liner whilst wearing ridiculous fashions, it's David Tennant, who'd be a great modern-day Jason King. Let's be honest, you'd have to have that level of charm to get away with it. Both shows are fun to watch. Both shows have a, a charm and an easygoing, laid-back manner to them. But Jason King is probably best left in the memory. But the world is ripe for the return of Department S. Well, I thought this was a good point to bring in the commercials. Aquaman and Firestorm fighting crime together Soak them down or burn them up No one does it better Whenever you find trouble They'll always be there To catch them in a bubble Or even torch their hair They stand for truth and justice the Fire and Water Podcast, celebrating Aquaman, King of the Seven Seas, and Firestorm, the Nuclear Man. Available at Fire and Water Podcast, Aquaman Shrine, Firestorm Fan, and on iTunes and Stitcher. I'm one of your hosts, the Irredeemable Shag, here to talk about Firestorm. Along with me is my co-host, Rob Kelly, here to talk about some guy that talks to fish. Really? You're going to pull this crap during the promo? It's bad enough I have to put up with your shenanigans every... Okay, let's have a look at the email section, of which there are two. Two! <laughs> Tim Elliott has emailed in, It's not easy being green. It certainly isn't, Tim. Hello, Mr. Green. Hello, Mr. Gray. I'm going to keep this short because you did a wonderful job of covering this much maligned film. I love this film. It's smart, fast-paced, and with just the right amount of humour and pathos. It's early in the MCU, so it's not here for much setup baggage. I'm looking at you, Iron Man 2. I agree, it's a nice hybrid of the TV show and the comics. My only problem is the design of the Abomination. I understand not wanting two dark green monsters for your third act fight, but they could have kept the facial features of the creature. Keep up the excellent work and try to remain calm. Cheers, Tim Elliott, third degree burn. I always remain calm, Tim. I am so laid back, I am almost horizontal. I am so laid back, I almost have detachable hips. Which one of them was Zephod Beeblebrox? Was it the first one? I don't remember. Doesn't matter. Either way. I always remain calm. Tim Elliott's email, though. Our next email, Alistair's back from last time. Hello, Alistair. Hello, Andrew. I have now caught up on your Spider-Man podcast episodes that I missed. It is so clear now that while I love catching up on Miss Nerd Law via your podcast, you and your format is what makes the difference. I was a little worried that jumping around the comics timeline might be confusing or ruin my enjoyment, but I was wrong. In fact, if you're ever stuck for ideas, a similar examination of the iconic eras of other comics characters might be fun. Heck, I'd be curious about an episode or two of Spawn at your discretion, since my only understanding comes from a review of the film. Um, see, the thing with that is, I feel suitably confident enough when dealing with Spider-Man that I know enough to come across as knowledgeable on the subject, while still knowing that I don't know everything. Because knowing what you don't know is the start of learning. I don't know a lot about Spawn, 
So if I did a Spawn episode like that, I would pretty much be in the same boat as you, Alistair. I've read, I think, the first year or so of Spawn, but I think that's all I've ever read. I've never gone back to it after that first year. Because as interesting as some of the ideas were, McFarlane's grim, dark execution was a bit off-putting to me. And also, he was in his phase there where he was just so down on Marvel that there are a number of issues that are just him slagging off Marvel. And you're like, I get your problems with them, dude, but they made you a millionaire. So, you know, get over it. So I don't know if I'd do the same with, with Spawn. I did do the first six issues of The Hulk. I have on occasion covered other comics on this show. Primarily, though, I leave comics to Hey Kids Comics when me and my son Michael get together. And there's five years of shows there where we talk about comics. And it's it's largely undated because we didn't ever really talk about current news Maybe in the email section, so you can skip the email section if you want to. But by and large, we covered comics from all over the show in that, when we did Hey Kids Comics. So there was never really, it's not, you're going to listen to it and go, well, this doesn't this doesn't matter anymore. You, you, you can cover New Frontier whenever. It's a timeless story. So there's, there's five years worth of comic stuff there that you may want to check out. Um, I almost recommend a few comics I've read and loved. Oh, okay. Order of the Stick. DM of the Rings, Darts and the Droids, never heard of them. Second Empire, Transmetropolitan, and Sunstone. Links are included, as only two of them are conveniently comics graphic novels. Comics remain the last great nerd medium I've had to really get into, as so often the art style changing between issues jars my mind. That, and even as a follower of Doctor Who and Star Trek, comics continuity seems an intimidating mess of crossovers, reboots, and pseudo-reboots. Yeah. See, that's that's why I think manga took off. You know, manga... I mean, manga stories could run for 5, 10, 15, 20 years, but they ended. They had a beginning, they built up, and then they ended. And you don't really have that with American superhero comics. And I do wonder now if that's why stuff like Image are doing better. This new generation of comics readers that are coming in, they're looking at the fact that the old guard, Spider-Man, Superman, Batman, etc., 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 have these years' worth of continuity behind them that they just don't really care about or really want to get into, which is weird because it's so much easier to get into them now than it was when we were kids. We were reliant on Marvel Tales reprinting old stories or hunting for back issues. Everything is available for you at the moment via comicsology or whatever. It's all out there for you to discover. And I do wonder if that's why Batman has remained successful because he's, for a long time, Batman has been quite episodic. Like a, a story arc or a run will not really have any relevance to another story arc or a run. So you can read those issues and be fine and get a complete story and then move on with your life. So it's interesting. Thank you for your podcast. I hope you're well. I'm doing fine with three lovely cats to help me through the everything that 2021 is. It's only February. Uh, Yeah, we're fine. We have three cats and a dog and kids. You know, I mean, they're not kids anymore, but whatever. All right. Thank you very much. That's the email section. I hope you enjoyed it. I enjoyed this. This was a bit different. Um, This was a show I had no previous knowledge of. I'd never seen Department S before or Jason King, but I knew of him. Because the the pop culture footprint of Peter Wingard in that character 
is quite sizable within the ITC TV show fan network. And I like a lot of ITC shows and they both sounded interesting. So when a couple of episodes just fell into my lap from the gods, I, uh, I thought we'd check them out. So I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any further information about Department S or Jason King or, or anything, I mean, I know Peter Wingard's life was dogged by controversy in his uh, in the mid-70s and so on. But um, drop me a line, let me know, and um, maybe I'll check out more ITC shows that I don't have any previous knowledge of, or revisit old ones. Maybe nice to go back to Space 1999 again at some point. Anyway, that's it. Hey Kids Comics at virginmedia.com if you want to drop me a line, and uh, I will be back next time when it's all going to be okay. Goodbye. Might I suggest rolling the end captions and fade? <laughs>